The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. It is amazing to see uh, what God is doing in the church, both here and around the world, using your giftedness. I, I come early on a Sunday morning and walk in, and it's dark, and it's quiet, and I walk through the halls and pray and turn on the lights, and I'm just amazed. The various kinds of churches that I've been a part of, this by far has been the funnest of seeing what God is doing and to see all that he has for us. And I believe, I'm convinced that there is more for us that God has. And we're in a day and in a time and in an age where asking this question, if you would, if you're in need of a title for your sermon, whom will you serve? There you go. Uh, Whom will you serve? I didn't put a title in, and uh, there's some of you who like titles, so there you go. But the question remains, whom will you serve? We, We live in a time that's looking around for truth. It's looking for a voice in the midst of difficult seasons, especially in the life of our country. It only takes a cursory glance at the news to see that there's difficulty and turmoil within our own country. To be able to stand for Christ, to be sensitive to the needs of others, which cross uh, social, economic, racial lines, educational lines, all the different lines are crossed. But somehow the gospel has something to say to inform our response That it doesn't take much to look at the headlines of CNN and to think that in Syria, a place that was uh, almost uh, the birthplace, if it were, in some ways, of Christianity, that some of the oldest churches of all the world, uh, Christian churches were there, and the destruction that's happening, and that the Christians need a voice in the Middle East. They need a voice in China. They need a voice in South America. There's a voice that needs to come for Christians willing to stand up and to say, as Martin Luther would have so many years ago in the Protestant Reformation, here I stand, I can do no other. C.S. Lewis wrote in one of his letters or essays that the world is a large circle and that the work of Christ is to draw us into an inner circle. It's to put us into a group that is differentiated from the rest of the world based on our allegiance and alliance with Christ. And the problem with the human heart is it doesn't like being drawn into the inner circle. We don't want to be identified differently from the rest of the world. We like blending in. I remember reading a great story, a book about the Navy SEALs. And in their training, they identified a certain type of person that no one could stand. They called him the gray man. They said the gray man was the man who blended in. He wasn't so bad that you could see his deficiencies and kick him out. And he wasn't so great that he stood out from the crowd. He was just gray and in the center. And the best of the soldiers within the SEAL training were trying to identify the gray man and get rid of him because he was the most dangerous for you didn't know who he was. Or when push came to shove, how he would act in the line of fire. The Christian church has been gray too long. 
And we're reading this morning from Daniel chapter 3. And we're seeing the story of three young men. Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. Who stood by their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Who stood for Christ. Who stood against an incredibly powerful king. And they basically said the words that Martin Luther grabbed and used so many years later. Here I stand. King, do what you would. I can do no other than this. So let's ask God's blessing on the reading and hearing of his word that we would learn from him today. Father, we thank you for your good word that you've preserved. And we pray that you would move within our hearts today that we would hear from you. Speak for your servants. Listen. Amen. This is a very familiar story, chapter 3. I could simply say Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and you would in your minds, if you've been in church at all, you would go, oh, the fiery furnace. If you're of a particular generation and have kids of a particular generation, you would go rack, shack, and Benny with the veggie tails. And you would go, I got it. I know who these men are. But there's something so much more profound that we learn in chapter 3. Just as we said, there's more in the book of Daniel than simply the phrase, dare to be like Daniel. We don't want to just be like Daniel. We want to see the God that Daniel saw. We want to see through Daniel's life into the beauty and the profound nature of his faith and the object of his faith, which moved him to make the stands that he made. And in the same way, we don't want to be just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, though they have great qualities, and we do want to see some of those in our lives. What we want to do is believe in the same God that they believed in and saw him as so able and faithful that we'd be willing, in the same way, to stand as these three young men, most likely teenagers, by the way, stood. The millennials are open targets for um, people to shoot at these days in our culture for a bad work ethic and for uh, a sense of entitlement. This would have been the millennial age for Daniel of young people. And here these four men stood and because of their stand have had an effect on all of history just simply because they lived out their faith well. So let's look at God's word together. I'm not going to read the whole thing, and so Patrick, I'll have to jump around a little bit back there. This is the very word of God. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the province to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, you are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, 
you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And then what happened in verse 8 was there was a group of these Chaldeans, these leaders, who came to the king and said, King, beginning in verse 12, there are certain Jews whom you appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, they didn't pay no attention to you. These men, they do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. And then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods and worship the golden image that I have set up? Now if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Ah, a threat. A gauntlet's been thrown down. A challenge of a king to three teenage boys. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. And Nebuchadnezzar said, okay, that's fine. No. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And it says that he got the fire and the furnace going hotter than it had ever been, and he bound them fully in all of their clothing, and he sent his guards, his strong men with them into that area and tossed the three men in, and the fire was so profound that the guards were burned and killed by the heat of it. And he looked in, and he noticed, beginning in verse 24, that King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished. And he rose up in haste and declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? And they answered and said to him, True, O king. And he answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like the son of the gods. And Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace, and he declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. And they came out, and all the satraps and the prefects and the governors, the king's counselors, gathered together, and they saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men, and the hair of their heads was not even singed. Their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. And Nebuchadnezzar answered, said, Blessed be the God 
of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angels and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, their houses laid to ruins, For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. This is the word of the Lord. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of it. Amen. We don't have a lot of time to go through all of these things. But what we find in this chapter 3 is truly a question of what are you serving? Whom are you serving? It's, it's pronounced. There's an idol, 90 feet tall and 9 feet in spread, and it's there, and Nebuchadnezzar is saying you have to worship it. And the young men were in a place of a battle of conscience. A spiritual gauntlet had been thrown down in front of them, and they had to make a life and death decision. At their young age, their theological framework, their worldview, what they understood about God in theory now came crashing forward into principle and in action at a moment's time. These were the same men who had gotten fat by being vegan and vegetarian. They had been there and seen God act. They'd seen God do these things in their midst. And now there was another opportunity for them to stand for Christ. And the first question that we're being asked this morning by this text is simply this. What are you worshiping? What are you worshiping? Notice that I didn't ask the question, are you worshiping? But what are you worshiping? Because the fact of the matter is this. You are worshiping something, whether you know it or not. You have given your allegiance. You serve Something in this world, there is some deity that you serve. Because you see, we were originally designed to worship. We were originally designed to be in a servant relationship to something, and ultimately it was to God. When the fall came, when Adam and Eve messed things up for all of us, basically now what happens is we're all serving something. We just don't know oftentimes what it is. And God says, you will either serve me or you will serve the things of this world, but do not mistake the fact that you're serving something. You realize that Nebuchadnezzar was stepping into this. And he was taking advantage of what he knew about humanity. Humanity wants to worship and serve something. It needs to. And so as the most powerful king of his day and of his age, he is a way of almost, I don't know, I wouldn't say it, handing chapter 2 a certain particular finger of saying, hey, I know there was a statue in chapter 2 and a dream that I have, and after that it said that my kingdom is going to come to an end and the head was gold. Well, I'm going to show you something, chapter 2, and the God of chapter 2. I'm building a 90-foot statue of pure gold. And I'm going to put it on the plains there. I'm going to put it in a place, God, in the plain, in the land of Dura, which interestingly enough is equivalent for most scholars, to chapter 10 of Genesis of the plains of the land of Shinar where the Tower of Babel 
was built. The arrogance and the audacity of Nebuchadnezzar to say, I am going to establish a God that everyone is going to worship. And I read the first part of this chapter because I wanted you to hear how many times it said that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Nine times it says that Nebuchadnezzar set up the thing. This was a work of Nebuchadnezzar. This was a human work. This was the work of culture. This was the work of the day. This is what was happening. And Nebuchadnezzar, in direct confrontation with God, and all that God had said was saying, no, I'm going to get all people to bow to me. Now, it most likely was not a statue of him. It was a statue of one of their gods. But make no mistake, what he was saying is, you're going to give full allegiance to me. And if you don't, you're dead. If you don't, I'm going to burn you. I'm going to sizzle you. I'm going to destroy you. You see, we don't have Nebuchadnezzars per se. But we have a culture that says this, serve anything else other than Christ and you'll be okay. Serve anything other than Christ and no one's going to really mess with you. But if you serve Christ... If you take and you go to an elementary school and a child takes into elementary school or to most high schools and he takes with him or her, I don't know, any book, pick any book, I don't care what book it is, any novel, you can read that novel, but you carry a Bible in to that school and all of a sudden the child is going to be told, hey, you can't read that book. You can do a book report on any book from any religion with the exception of one particular book. You can teach any theory about how the world came into being as long as it doesn't have anything to do with intelligent design. As long as it doesn't have anything to do with the fact that there possibly was a creator who spoke into nothingness and all things were created by him and for him. And he's at the top of the food chain. You see, things changed years ago in the Enlightenment. When theology used to be called and considered the mother of all sciences. Because you see, in all of the universities around all of the world, they understood this. The only way to understand anything is to understand God. But not today. Today we live in a different world. And we live in a culture that is constantly demanding that you worship the gods of this age. That you give all that you have. And these gods are set up by the hands of our culture. You see, you would go, but Bill, what are idols? We don't have idols. You've been to my house. There's no graven images in my house. And that may be true, but the fact of the matter is this. We're all serving something. And you have to ask the question for yourself, what are you serving? You see, an idol is nothing more than a good thing that has moved into an ultimate place in your life. And one way to identify it is to ask this question, what in your life, if it was taken from you right now, if it was taken from you today, that you would ask the question internally, is life worth living? Do I even want to go on tomorrow? If my child died, could I go on? Do I want to go on tomorrow? If my spouse died, if my wealth was taken from me, if my beauty was taken from me, if my standing in community was taken from me, if all of these things, if I was kicked off the football team, if I was out and I didn't have a prom date, if I did this or did that, if this was taken from me, if I didn't have that, 
then maybe life's not worth living. Whatever the that is, you're serving. Because what you're saying is, I have to have that in order to have life and to have meaning and significance. Is it good to make money in the world? Of course it is. But when you say you have to have money in order to be happy, it's become a God that you serve. Is it good to take care of yourself? Of course it is. But when you say, I have to look a certain way in order to be happy and content in life, then it's moved into a place of ultimate. To be married is a good thing, but to say, I have to be married. To have children is a good thing, but to say, I have to have children, those become ultimate things. And you see, these idols demand that we serve them, and they demand with threats and violence against us. Let's say this, if you don't have me, you'll never be content in life. If you don't have me, you'll never be happy. If you don't do this, if you don't act this way, if you don't look this way, then you'll never be popular, you'll never be accepted, you'll never be fill in the blank. That's your idol, that's your God, that's your Nebuchadnezzar saying this, if you don't serve me, I'm throwing you into your own fiery furnace. And it looks an awful lot like isolation, and it looks an awful lot like being marginalized, and it looks an awful lot like losing credit in a world that doesn't care. And so what you find in the middle of this first point of what are you worshiping is that these three young men made a determination that they would worship God exclusively at all costs. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, almost as if they went to the king who was in mid-sentence. The words were still kind of hooked on to his lip and the little bubble was still there. And there was like, you don't need to finish the statement. We're not bowing to you, buddy. Neb, Neb, can I call you Neb? Neb, let me explain something to you, Neb. Yahweh, that's who I serve. And I know this much about my God. I know that he has the capacity and the power to deliver me from you because you hold no power. I know the dream that happened in chapter 2. I know that there's going to be someone after you, but there'll never be anyone after him. And so Nebuchadnezzar, let me just help you out here. Do your best because I'm never bowing the knee to you. Oh, wouldn't that be great for the church to say that today? You know who our young people are looking for to see if they're doing it? It's you older folks in here and me. Because we've got an awful lot of young people who are saying this. If it's not worth it for them to do it, why is it worth it for me to do it? And so we generationally have to ask the question, are we willing to stand uncompromised for Christ. Next thing, know this. If you do, fidelity to God comes with a cost. Fidelity to God comes with a cost. Now that shouldn't be a surprise to anybody who's been in the church. And if you've been in the church for a while, it shouldn't surprise you because this, God's love for you, his fidelity to you came at a cost to himself How is it that we think that we can have fidelity to him and have no cost in it? I've talked to way, I've done over a hundred weddings in my life. Not my own, but a hundred weddings. And I've talked to so many people, sadly, that when they walk into a, a marriage, they think that somehow they can continue to live a life of singleness, but yet be married. They think they can look at other people the same way and talk to other people the same way. And I hear from men, unfortunately, too often, who say this, hey, it's just window shopping. I'm not going to buy anything. What's the harm in that, Bill? I mean, come on. 
And I look at him and I go, do you think that getting married is not going to cost you something? It's going to cost you the fact that you now don't get to look upon another woman. You now don't get to undress her. You now don't get to pursue her. You now have a fidelity to your wife. Now, it's going to cost you something. And if you don't want that cost, don't get married. Well, Bill, you just don't believe in marriage. Oh, I believe in marriage. I just don't believe in yours right now. You see, fidelity has a cost. And for so many of us in the church, we want Jesus, but we don't want all the stuff that comes with us. We want Jesus and the power of his resurrection. Preach it so good. But we don't want the suffering that comes as well. The communion of his sufferings. We want Jesus in all his glory and beauty. But we don't want the same fiery furnace that he was willing to enter on our behalf. We want him to acknowledge us on the last day. We want him to stand there and go, Bill McCutcheon, I got your name right here on my Lamb's book of life and I'm willing to stand before my father and I'm willing to stand against the accuser Satan who's trying to take you down and I'm going to say, no, 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 I'm standing with Bill McCutcheon but I want to make it through life when no one has to know that I'm standing with Christ. I want to just sort of ease in and Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego are teaching us today that fidelity to God comes at a great cost. They stood alone. Notice how many other Jews stood with them in Babylon. Do you know how many other Jews stood with them in Babylon that were named here? None. Daniel would have because Daniel was described as a man of pure heart who never uh, did and bent the knee to Nebuchadnezzar. But he's not named in chapter 3. So what that meant for these three young men with all the other people of Jerusalem and of Judah who'd been brought into Babylon, who looked on that day. And you can imagine these three young men would have looked out and gone, there's no way. There's no way the rest of the Jews, there's no way the rest of Israel is going to bend the knee. At least there's going to be a few thousand of us. And as the horns went and the praise band kicked in and the bass started thumping and the light show started going and everybody bowed the knee, guess how many people were standing? Three. Fidelity to Christ may cost you, and it may cost you all of the associations that you so dearly hold. It may cost you in your business. It may cost you in your relationships. It may cost you at school. It it might cost you to stand for Christ. And what Christ is saying is it's worth it. I'm willing to stand with you. It may even cost you worse than that. There are threats and there are intimidations. Put this in, take this out of storybook form and put this into real form. Coach Harden was the coach, one of the best coaches that West Charlotte High School ever had in Charlotte, North Carolina. Bruce Harden, a tough man. And I remember, I wasn't a football player, but I was working out one day with the football team lifting some weights. And Coach Harden came to me and he lit into me. Because I wasn't doing something according to the rules of the weight room in high school. And he was a big man. And I was not. Nose grew faster than the rest of my face. Glasses thick as Coke bottles. All of this stuff. And I'm sitting there. And here is this very large man standing in front of me. And all the football players are like, holy, yeah, we, yeah, we, Bill, you're on your own. And I think about that. That here were these three young men. I don't know how big they were in stature, but these three young men standing in front of a king whose face changed in front of them. You ever had someone's face change in front of you? 
Parents, your faces have changed in front of your children, I imagine. (laughs) Children, you've seen parents' faces. All of us were kids at one point. It changed and it turned. But they were unwilling to be intimidated by the threats of this man. And know this, that we live in a day and an age and a world that's demanding and threatening us that we change, that we bend the knee. And it says, I'm going to make the fire of this furnace hotter than you've ever experienced. They're going to make it worse than you think that it possibly could be. And the question's going to come to you, are you willing to count the cost? Consider the cost. Considering those costs. But here's what we find out about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That they knew who they were worshiping. And that they had determined that the fidelity with God was worth the cost because they knew this much. They knew that God remains faithful to his people always. They knew the words of Isaiah. They would have known and maybe even had the scroll. But now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you and through the rivers, and they shall not overwhelm you. And when you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. The flame shall not consume you, for I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I gave Egypt as your ransom, cushion, Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you, and I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west. I'll gather you. God doesn't promise not to give us floods and fires. He promises to be with us in the midst of them. And it was a promise that was so real to Shadrach and to Meshach and Abednego that they were willing to stand before a king and say, do your best. And they knew this much about God. They knew that God had the ability to save them, but they were not presumptuous enough To think that he would. They didn't stand at the front of the fire and say, God, we pray in the name of Jesus to bind these flames. They basically said this, God, we do not presume upon you to do anything with these flames. But we know this, you'll take care of us in the midst of the flames. We know this, that you are going to be with us in the middle of that fire. We don't know how it is. They didn't know there was going to be a fourth person come jumping in with them. All they knew is this, isn't it fascinating, a quick aside, that the men who obeyed the king's commands died and the ones who didn't obey his commands lived. Kind of ironic, isn't it? The dudes who were big and strong and throwing them into the fire were dead at the door of the furnace. And these three little young men who were tossed in went in. And what was fascinating was God was so faithful to them that he sent an angel of the Lord. Some believe it was Christ pre-incarnate. Others just an angel of the Lord. It doesn't tell us which way. Here's what, that, here's what you need to know. It doesn't matter. What matters is that the presence of God is with his people. And no matter what circumstance you find yourself. Do you realize that? The presence of your God is with you in every single circumstance. And these young men knew that even if their bodies were burned, that God was still faithful. They did not place upon God an arbitrary test to say, God, I will have faith in you only if you deliver me from this trial. 
They said, God, I will have faith in you whether you deliver me from this trial or not because they can burn my flesh, they can take my life, but they can never touch my soul, and I know that I'll be welcomed in heaven one day. Good and faithful servant, give me the strength to stand and to walk proudly into the fiery furnace. That was these young men's prayer. And you recognize this, that God is so faithful to us in the middle of this through his son Christ. Because Christ, you see, went into a fiery furnace and no one went in with him. His father said this, because of all of these people who have bowed the knee to another God and I have to destroy them, but I want to save some out of all. And so, son, I'm going to send you into a furnace of my kindled heat and anger in the injustice and in the worship of other gods and I'm going to destroy you and no one's coming to rescue you. And it says that he willingly went in because of the joy set before him. Us. Us. Who are going to bow the knee to another God almost every day. And what you need to know is this. You have an incredibly faithful God. Who says, I know you're going to mess up, but my son didn't on your behalf. I know that you're going to be intimidated by the voice of the world and the kings of the world. And you're going to give in, but I want you to know this. I'll never give in on you. And my son stood in your place so that you could make it through one day to heaven itself, even in the midst of all of your shortcomings and failings. Isn't that good news? Because I know this much about Bill McCutcheon. I don't have a lot in relation to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I wondered... If I would have bent the knee and then made myself feel better by saying, well, it's really only outward. I'm really worshiping God on the inside. These men said, no, outside and in, we're not bending the knee. And it was impressive. And that's where we'll end today. Don't just be impressed. Nebuchadnezzar was impressed. He was amazed. Whoa, who wouldn't be? I, he brought all of his wise men. Didn't I throw three men in there? Yep, then why is there a fourth one? And they're unbound. This is amazing. And he called in. I wonder how close he got to the fire. <laughs> you know, two dead bodies or a few dead bodies. Hey, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out. And they came out. And interesting, the fourth person didn't come out. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out. And you can go, he was like... <laughs> You don't even smell like smoke. And he touched their hair. You haven't been sizzled at all. This is amazing. This is fantastic. I am so impressed by your faith. I'm so impressed by your God that I'm going to kill anybody who says anything about it. Interesting what didn't happen. Nebuchadnezzar was so impressed that he refused to remove the idol from the plane. He was so impressed that he continued to speak of the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but never said, my God. Being impressed does not cut it, folks. Do not just be impressed by the God of the Bible. Bend your knee to the God of the Bible. He doesn't want you to just be impressed with him. Don't walk out on the beach today and be impressed by the sunrise or to go out into the marsh and be impressed by the sunset. Don't be impressed by the lives of God's people, but go and turn that internally to say this, I'm going to be more than impressed. I'm going to repent and I'm going to give my full life to this God. And he's going to be my God. Not just the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You see, Nebuchadnezzar never got it. At least not yet. 
And I want you to be more than impressed. I want you to be convicted to change your life for Christ. He doesn't need any more people filling his church who are just impressed with him. He needs people who are willing to go into fires for him. I need you and you need me to make that determination today. To say we're not going to do it perfectly, but we're going to go do it together. That we're going to stand and be more than impressed. We're going to worship him alone. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the beauty of the story of the incredible faithfulness of these young men. But I thank you even more for your faithfulness to them. And would we see the God that they saw? Would we believe the promises that they believed? Would we be willing to to stake our very life and existence on it? And Father, would we Would we not be like Nebuchadnezzar, who when encountering the living God offered his works, he promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He gave words of affirmation, but he never bent the knee. Would we never fall for that trap of offering our works in exchange for your acceptance? But would we offer our lives because you gave your life for us? We find our hope in Christ alone, and we sing to him today. Amen. Let's